Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Hello and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're here on episode 58 of Attack of the Final Girls. And this episode is going to come out in Black History Month in 2024. So happy Black History Month. And for Black History Month, we wanted to pull up some pretty integral movies, I would say, to Black horror film history. And the first one that we're covering today is Candyman from 1992. Yeah, a legendary horror franchise, legendary Black horror icon in Candyman in Tony Todd, a film that I think stands the test of time in certain regards. In in other regards, it's a little flawed, but we'll get into it. A film that has seen a renaissance as a franchise in 2021 with Nia DaCosta and Jordan Peele's sort of sequel slash revamping of the franchise. This one, there's a lot to dig into. Watching it just now, I was just reminded of how great a film it is. Yeah, there are always parts of this movie that I totally space on. Yeah. In particular, the ending. I always get kind of fuzzy towards the end because there's a lot going on with kind of the wrap up of the film. But before we crack into it, I just wanted to give a brief overview. If you haven't seen this movie, it's probably streaming. You can find it fairly easily on DVD. It's certainly not hard to find. And in particular, we're covering the 92 version. Not that the 2021 version is lesser than or not worth watching. We just wanted to pick the OG. Yeah. But this movie stars Virginia Madsen, really famous actress, uh, Xander Berkeley, who always seems to play a bad guy in pretty much every movie. Um, but Truly. the two of them play Helen and Trevor Lyle, a married couple. Trevor is a professor at the University of Illinois. Helen is a grad student at the University of Illinois. We have Cassie Lemons playing Bernadette Walsh, who is Helen's best friend. We have Vanessa Williams playing Anne-Marie McCoy. And then we have Tony Todd playing the titular Candyman character. One of the first things I think I ever saw Tony Todd in, and he's just a powerhouse in this movie. And I'm so glad that he still participates in film and in conventions and stuff because he's such a joy. Every time I see him on the screen, I'm like, yep, there's Tony Todd. Yeah. I love him. <laughs> uh, but the movie is about, in Chicago, a project building called Cabrini Green and this urban legend that surrounds the building itself. And Helen sort of is trying to learn more about urban legends around Chicago and in general. But then she kind of catches on to this Cabrini Green, Candyman, urban legend, and chaos ensues. Yes. So it's a great film, though. I would say like every Halloween, this is one that people watch pretty frequently. So yeah, it's great. It truly is. You know, this franchise is based on a Clive Barker story called The Forbidden. Now, the original story takes a little bit of a different twist, owing mainly to the fact that it takes place in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. So although you have a racialized sort of element to the story, it's a little different because we're talking, you know, race and race relations in the UK. Uh, as opposed to in America. So the film takes us to America and really deals with both historic and modern issues of race. And that's one of the things that I think is actually so brilliant about it is that 
although, you know, it was not uncommon in the 90s to see stories and films that were portraying the horrors of enslavement, the horrors of the aftermath of that. In the 90s, we were just starting to get some media that was portraying, you know, some of the horrors of the Jim Crow era. In the 90s, we were so in it in terms of, as a society, actively fretting about housing projects and gangs and fretting about and demonizing the conditions of poor Black folks that white folks had put them in, essentially, Right. that it was, to my mind, kind of rare that early on to see a lot of media, in particular film, really starting to examine those conditions and to humanize the people involved. Granted, this still paints a lot of broad strokes, but for the time, it's actually fairly nuanced. Mm -hmm. Throughout this episode, you're going to hear me saying, well... With 2024 eyes, this, and in 90s eyes, that, because I really, when I was watching this film, kind of had to have that duality of, for the 90s, this was XYZ, but with my 2024 hat on, you know, a post-George Floyd, Breonna Taylor hat on, I feel this way about it. And really, post the new Candyman film, because I feel like my viewing this time around was so informed by that film as well. Yeah, definitely. And this is the first time I have rewatched this version since we watched the Same. the newer version in 2021. So I was interested to see a lot of parallels, a lot of the same topic, discussing the same topic in a very similar fashion, but making it relevant again to 2021. Yeah. Not to say that it's it's just a rehash because it's not, but it's interesting that things always come back around, that nearly 30 years later, that movie is still relevant in a very different and also a very similar way. I was very interested in that in watching this one. You know, obviously, it's been three years, so I could probably use a refresher on the Nia da Costa film, too. But I was like, wow, you know, the Nia da Costa version got so much hate. And so it was like, oh, they're talking about gentrification and it, uh, blah, 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 gentrification. Don't you want your neighborhoods to be safe? Why are we still talking about this? And we watched this 1992 version. I'm like, did you guys watch the first one at all? Did you get what was happening? Did yeah. you cat? Did you miss the part where Candyman was the son of a slave? And, you know, the demonizing of this project and the fact that this is a historically black project in Chicago. And it really was like in real life, Cabrini Green was a historically black project in Chicago that was known for being in terrible condition. Did you know all of those things? Did you ignore that from the original movie? Because it seems pretty obvious that you would have to, there'd have to be some sort of like suspension of belief there in order to get past all of those things and then complain that Nia DaCosta's version was too woke. Right. Like, did you miss the entire point of the first one? Because it seems like you did. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My partner and I had a long discussion about that, even when the trailer for the um, Nia DaCosta version came out in 2021. And I think, you know, unfortunately, there's a certain segment of people who as soon as they see Jordan Peele's name on something, because he produced and co-wrote, we're like, oh, no, it's going to be air quotes woke. Yeah. And then to have Nia DaCosta, uh, who, by the way, 
I believe this stat still stands. I know when the movie came out, it did, was the um, highest grossing black woman director in horror. Like, oh, wow. Her Candyman set some records. But, you know, to have a black woman director at the helm, again, people freaked out, um, quite honestly. And I know when the trailer came out, there was already a lot of vitriol. And my partner and I were just like, do you know the franchise? <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know what this is? Because it's, it's uh, the, it, I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing that it's been for the past, I would say, like 10 years, especially well, horror is too woke now. And it's like, did you ever watch any of the original horror movies that like existed? Do you know <laughs> yeah. that they like sci-fi horror, especially George Romero, yeah. late 70s, early 80s horror is all about. And, and this movie actually spells it out. It's about the near horror that we can't accept. Yeah. So we create these fantastic stories about it so that we can more easily explain why we're feeling the way that we're feeling. Godzilla is a good example. Absolutely. I mean, Night of the Living Dead is too. It's a great example of being scared of your fellow man and not being able to articulate why. Oh, yeah. I mean, so the whole movie is about urban legends yeah. a as a way to explain societal horrors. And about halfway through watching this, I started to make a list of like all of the things in either, you know, short bursts or big moments this film hit upon in terms of late 80s, early 90s societal anxieties. So we have kidnapped babies, yep. razor blades and candy, gangs, drugs, how folks in the project live, you know, yeah. and I know there are others because uh, I, I didn't do this from the very start. But, you know, this film, it does what horror does best once again. And all of those things aren't even the big scary thing. Right. Exactly. I thought the same thing about urban legends. Like, yeah, there are so many different urban legends that get wrapped into this story about one specific urban legend from the mind of Clive Barker, and also partially based on real events that happened in Chicago. Like the woman that they talk about, I think they call her Ruthie Jean, who dies in her apartment and somebody had crawled through the medicine cabinet. That is real. Yes. Somebody actually crawled into a woman whose name is very similar to Ruthie Jean and murdered her in her apartment. And they use that story in this particular iteration. So like wrapping real life into a film about urban legends that are fantastic, but also all rolls back into real life. Yeah. You know, the razor blades and the candy, totally huge urban legend. Parents were convinced that they needed to check their kids candy all the time, which you should because sometimes people give you gross stuff like <laughs> like Smarties. Nobody wants yeah. Smarties. It's the Oprah effect. Yeah. Something happens on the Oprah show and parents everywhere freak the hell out and say, oh, my God, lipstick parties are happening. And if you wear jelly bracelets, your daughter is a slut. <laughs> like, I remember the jelly bracelet thing. Oh, yeah. It happened at my high school, too. In 2007, you know, 2006, 2007, we had the same jelly bracelet thing. We had the rainbow party thing. Like, yep. oh, if you're wearing weird colored lipstick, it's because you're giving blowjobs at parties. Yep. Like, no. None of my friends were doing that. We were playing Wii Bowling <laughs> in high school. Like, there was no such thing as a rainbow party, at least not that I'm aware of. Yeah. And even now I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. So it was just interesting to see, like, yes, all of those societal fears in the 90s and also ways that we wrap those into urban legends that still persist. Hell, it was the same thing with weed candy. Everybody's like, you got to check your kid's candy because weed candy is going to be in there. And it's like nobody I know who purchases weed candy would ever 
be so like glib about accidentally giving it to a child. Number one, safety. Number two, that shit is expensive. Right. <laughs> Nobody's just accidentally mixing it in with their candy. Normally, if you have weed candy, it's like in a specific area yeah. that's nowhere near your Kit Kats. Yeah. You're not just like, oops, I dropped it and I can't find it. You're like, holy shit, that's $40. I'm going to find that because there's no way I'm giving that to a little kid. Right. And also, don't you pay attention when you give kids candy, like what's in your hand? Make sure there's not weird stuff in well, there. Well, because if you're doing the marijuana, you're stoned all the time. That's true. Your brain is mush. Your yeah. brain is an egg in a frying pan. All hopped up on goofballs. <laughs> the go- goofballs. What's a goofball? I have no clue. <laughs> that, that is... That's like a grandma saying right there. Oh, it is. It, All yes. hopped up on goofballs. Yeah. To kind of bring this back in, I really, really enjoyed the way that we use the guise of an urban legend to separate ourselves as a society from real life. Because I was thinking about it. At what point, how many layers of my cousin's friend whose ex-boyfriend knew this guy How many layers of that do we have to get to in order to feel comfortable and fun about an urban legend versus real life? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is going to be like, cover your ears if you're sensitive about babies. But the urban legend that they talked about where they were like, and the lady roasted the baby like a turkey. Here in the Miami Valley in Ohio, we actually had a woman who was under the influence of drugs and she microwaved her baby. Yeah. And then the baby died, obviously. That was real. That really yes. happened. That There was a whole media circus about that. So we, having seen that on the news, it's not a funny urban legend. Right. That's real life. But how many layers of that real life do we have to go through in order for us to be like, oh, this is a fun urban legend that I feel comfortable passing on to someone or I can tell at a party. Yeah. I thought that was interesting to see that kind of like, oh, no, this Ruthie Jean character, this is real. This is not an urban legend. When you think about urban legends in that regard and, you know, mythology or folklore, the thing you have to look at, too, that I've been thinking a lot about when it comes to urban legends is, like, when you start to peel back from my cousin's brother's grandma's sisters what you know all of that (laughs) and you shrink the big sort of mythic urban legend back down to real people a lot of those things have to do with really horrible violence against people because of race because of gender or you know sexual orientation because of identity Mm -hmm. essentially So many things that used to be urban legends or tall tales, you can now look back on and they're lynching legends, you know, in this country. So, you know, urban legends, mythology, folklore, it can be fun. It can be interesting. But there is some caution that you have to take there. You know, I, I am a little more cautious now with what I'm reading and really trying to dive into like the why of the story or like the truth behind the legend and what does that tell us about the time in which it actually happened or why you know why did it spread you know Mm -hmm. why was it considered a fun story because racism or because homophobia or because ableism right it's a tricky thing and i think that actually this film 
does a good job of that Mm -hmm. in a little more of a covert way of an implicit way. But I think that's kind of what this film is getting at is that you have this kind of urban legend and people on like Helena and Bernadette's side, uh, and I definitely want to talk about Bernadette here in a mm-hmm. minute, they're interested and right. they're intrigued and they're even interested in it, not just from a salacious point of view, but they want to study this phenomenon. But for the people in Cabrini Green, although there is an actual supernatural element to this, they know more of the truth of it, that this legend has its roots in murder, in people's death, in enslavement, in racism, in lynching. So I think this movie actually, for being a movie made in 1992, is getting at some pretty complex stuff, even in terms of like white academic study of legends and folklore and culture in communities that are non-white or, you know, in communities that are other than the people doing the research. It's really fascinating that they did that well of a job with this Mm -hmm. in the 90s, in the early 90s. Yeah. I mean, Bernard Rose, who directed this movie, he was very, very, very involved during the production. And I could list off several other movies that he's done, but you probably haven't heard of them They're much lower flying, I would say. He's from the UK, so maybe if you're a UK listener that you'll be more familiar with him. But here in the States, not a lot of his other movies like really did well, but he was extremely involved in finding local lore in Chicago, which is where this was filmed. It was actually filmed near the Cabrini Green Project. It was filmed actually in Chicago, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Not something that you typically see. So it was really steeped in the location. But I did want to say, too, urban legends are not so much a thing anymore because the internet, essentially, and social media. If something really terrible and like completely wild and out there happens, you've got a TMZ article about it. You've got YouTube shows that go on and on about it. You've got TikToks, you know. There is no layer of not knowing that you can, you know, you can like make suspicions about not to say 100% of the time you can't have an urban legend, but much less common now because of social media and instant entertainment. And because of the way that the really harmful aspects of urban legends have come into more prominence. You know, I can't recall if I've actually said this on this podcast But I've had a couple of discussions with a couple of different people as an X-Files fan about how conspiracy theories used to be fun and now they're gross. Right. You know, like back when the X-Files first came on, like it was really fun to talk about like, ooh, like shadowy government conspiracies and UFOs and all of that. But that has gotten so harmful Mm -hmm. in like a really disgusting way that like I just want no part of it and most of the people that used to find urban legends and conspiracy theories fun you kind of reach a forked path where you're either diving in pretty deep in a way that is pretty scary you know or you're kind of opting out and I feel like urban legends have kind of gone along with you know some of those other things definitely um as we've gotten more into like the sort of like deep web Alex Jones kind of 
situation. (laughs) Which is very, very frustrating because there was a time when I was a teenager when Alex Jones was hilarious because, you know, the Infowars times when he's talking about stuff that nobody else is talking about by having a podcast in the early aughts when nobody else was podcasting. Yep. And he was talking about like, hey, we need to be asking questions about 9-11. Not to say that I still listen to Alex Jones or that I ascribe to any of the crazy stuff that he's ever said, because I don't. But it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, somebody saying the unsaid stuff yeah. and, and asking these questions that that everybody's kind of got in the back of their minds. And now we're like, oh, my God, Alex Jones has created an entire incel alpha male culture that is extremely scary and harmful oh, yeah. to people everywhere. I mean, who among us of a certain age didn't spend late nights listening to Coast to Coast? Oh, yeah. Because it was fascinating and hilarious yes. and weird and wild. And now there again, like, I just, I, I can't engage yeah. with that stuff. Well, and we also knew, okay, this is like fringe st- stuff. Yeah. You know, nobody's yeah. really taking this seriously. And the people who are, it's like, okay, they're maybe a little kooky. Yeah. But now it's like, no, this is a multi-million dollar Patreon. This is a, yeah. a several book long deal. This is an entire aspect of society who's really deeply buying into this and then reproducing these same sort of ideas for other folks. And it gets really harmful and scary. Yeah. And so. using those ideas to harm people and not to be like an absolutist or or say this in a binary way, but to harm the wrong people. Right. Like part of the, I think, fun of all of that back then was like you were really like the government is hiding things. Right. People in power are hiding things. And now that's gotten so convoluted that it turns into, you know, it pits people against each other in a way that's not productive or or helpful at all. Right. We were punching up. Yeah. We were saying, exactly. you know, fuck the man. Like, the government's not telling us stuff and now it's like poor people are stealing things from you when it's like no rich people are stealing things from everybody you know and that's sort of the harmful the cognitive dissonance that's happening there and it's getting to you in every aspect of your life you know back in the day we didn't have instant media on our phones. We didn't have TikTok. YouTube was very, very early. It was definitely not proliferating as much as it is now. So you didn't have your phone and your email and your mail and, you know, everything telling you these things and piping those into your brain. It was like, no, late at night, I'm listening to Infowars on Apple. (laughs) And like, we're all giggling about it. And now you have that in every aspect of your life, just that same idea being piped in. And the more you look into those things, the more those things get suggested on your phone. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I know we totally went down this rabbit hole. But yeah, I mean, really, though, it's real. It's real life. And this is something that we have now. The way in which we interact with media gets reciprocated and then fed back to us. Yes. That was not something that we had in 92. You might get a book of urban legends and be like, ooh, this is spooky. You know, the boyfriend hanging over top of the car and the blood droplets, you know, falling down or when a stranger calls. Yeah. The babysitter, you know, he's the call is coming from inside the house. You know, (laughs) those things were something that you could partake of at your own leisure. And now we're like, Oh no, that's getting pumped in and ever and it's way more real. These aren't just like stories that your cousin's grandma's goldfish told you. This is like 
a real story that happened in the news. And now you're going to see all kinds of stuff about that. What is that bias called where you see a where you confirmation bias? Yeah. Yeah. Like when you buy a car and then you start seeing that car everywhere. Yeah. 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 So the confirmation bias is reproduced in media. The way oh, that yeah. your analytics are sold makes you see those things. It's way toxic. Yeah. It <laughs> Turn really, off your really phone, is. y'all. <laughs> <laughs> or like get into the cozy side of TikTok and Instagram. <laughs> yeah. And like forget about everything just veg out to six hours of different stitches about the puxatani filled groundhog (laughs) song and that's where i'm living on tiktok oh my gosh elise myers did a duet with that she's randomly just a really really good singer and she did like this really beautiful duet with it i'm like this is i don't even know what's happening in tiktok (laughs) i know (laughs) so the confirmation bias thing Uh so this movie just scratches the surface of that because i was clocking how many times when they were in the beginning of the film talking about the real murders that, you know, were associated with the legend of Candyman, different people would say, I read it in the papers. Right. Right. And so I think that in a way, and obviously we are so far agone from I read it in the papers here in the year of our Lord 2024. Well, it would be paywalled if it was in the paper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like annoyed. I'm on no, a, a mission against paywalls yeah no journalism (laughs) should be free and accessible to all yes thank you for coming to my (laughs) ted talk um (laughs) it was a great ted talk thanks julia yeah (laughs) but i think this movie does kind of hit on that confirmation bias thing because presumably the newspapers are not reporting that Candyman caused the death of ruthie ann but people's biases about oh there was this murder here and there was this murder there and somebody came through the wall are confirming something that these people already believed or a legend they already like well it happened to us in our community and look it happened over there too so therefore that legend must be true so i think there's an element of that there even if it is a little different than we experience that today that's a good point. And I think the ultimate goal of an urban legend, at least as I remember it, I mean, I'm who knows? I don't know what it was like in the 70s. I wasn't alive then. But I always thought that the goal of an urban legend was to freak you out, number one. Yeah. Like, oh, man, wild shit is happening. Yeah. And number two, for you to believe in it, for it to have enough of a seed of relevance or or reality in it that you would believe, like, okay, well... My grandma's pastor's mailman is enough of an expert about this thing that they really know that this happened. And so the story that you're conveying to me has at least some seed of truth in it. And that was like kind of the fun thing is what about this is true and can I believe the source of it? Or like saying, well, my grandma saw it on the news and then she told me or something like that. Yeah. It was always a game of telephone because- You know, the story on the news might say, hey, a woman was murdered. And then via four different people, when it gets to you, it's like, oh, there's a supernatural guy with a hook hand who's slaughtering people in this apartment building. And so that's the way mythology works. Right, right. Is, you know, uh, we often forget. It's something that I didn't realize until I started studying ancient Greek mythology is that, you know, we always think of... (laughs) Greek mythology break time, y'all. We always think of like the canonical Olympian gods, for example. But there is actually no canon. There are all these different sources that create what we know as Greek myth. But the legends were there and they would start in places like Athens, for example. 
But if you went to someplace like Samothrace, they're taking that story from Athens or that deity and they're making it fit what their community needs mm-hmm. in a deity or a hero or a figure. So the stories get transformed based on regionality too. We see that a lot in like Appalachian and Southern American folklore too. Mm-hmm. You'll see these figures that recur from, you know, Alabama to Kentucky to Virginia. But they each have a slight twist. The legend gets twisted a little bit based on what that community's interpretation of the myth is, how it fits their own spin or their own way of life, their industry, their geography, whatever. So I think even modern urban legends, they do kind of work that way, you know? Yeah. And kudos to Bernard Rose for being able to take a story that originally, although not outside of race more was about class about a rich person and a poor person like Candyman being a poor person lusting after a rich person and being able to transform that to fit into this very specific although like in terms of scope of the movie niche overall not niche at all you know he made it fit this very small community in Chicago but it applies across America. Oh, yeah. You know, that same idea applies across America. So kudos to him for being able to do that and to do it well. And not only did he take this story from Clive Barker, which notoriously pretty scary yes, uh, writer. Absolutely. Like I always say, like, I'm kind of afraid of what it's like inside of Clive Barker's <laughs> head because of the stuff that makes it to the screen is any indication. Yeah. It's pretty messed up in there. Yeah, exactly. But to be able to take that and transform it into something that really like spoke then to the condition of black communities, especially poor black communities, and also can still apply now, like kudos to him. And I think in that regard, There are so many things that we see in this movie in regard to race that have not changed at all in over uh, 30 years. I was particularly struck, and the movie points this out. I was struck by the fact that the movie was aware enough to point this out. It's after Helen is beat up in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Was it the gang? Was it Candyman? We don't know at that point kind of what's going on. And, you know, she's taken to the hospital and she's talking to the detective. And even she points out that the cops care more about her, a white woman, being beat up than multiple murdered black folks in that neighborhood. And although we see it on the screen, the fact that they went to the length to have her say it explicitly was kind of amazing for, yeah. again, for 1992. I don't recall a lot of films from that era just saying the quiet part out loud yeah. in that regard. No, absolutely. I think that there are several moments in this movie where they absolutely outline the indifference of police officers. It takes the kidnapping of a Black child yeah. in order for people to actually start giving a shit about this place. And only because... There was also the gruesome murder of a dog and a white woman who's going all crazy with a knife inside. And that was the thing. That was like the tipping point where they're like, oh, yeah, maybe we should actually do some stuff. But you don't ever see any follow through through that. Right. You know, it's reported that her child is missing. Anthony is missing. But then we don't see any follow through. Like we don't see police like raids. You know, they're not like going through the apartment building. Bernadette does mention that it's on lockdown. But 
it takes that, that level of crime and uh, media frenzy in order for them to actually give a shit. And there are other moments in the movie, too, where especially Helen is saying, hey, this like whole situation is way uneven and messed up. Like somebody pay attention. How do we get people to actually care about this? Aside from just having an article in a newspaper, it's really fascinating that this movie was actually saying it out loud and making it obvious because in 92, they could have made that subtext. And I think it might have gone over a lot of viewers heads. So they needed to say like, hey, this is a parallel. We have a black antagonist who was lynched, you know, because he loved a white woman which you don't even find out until later that she's white, running parallel to the story of this project that is going through some really messed up stuff and nobody cares. Everybody's just like, this urban legend is just swirling through everybody's heads and they're like, oh, the Candyman's going to get you from adults to children. And there's this parallel happening and the movie does have to spell it out for you. It does have to say, hey, this is messed up. Everybody come look like this is really messed up and uneven. And I appreciate it for that. Yeah, definitely. The one place I do feel like the film fails a little bit is in regard to the black women. Bernadette is basically the black best friend trope. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which sucks. And I feel like unfortunately maybe you know in the same way that the movie was there enough to have helena say like hey why are you paying attention only when i get attacked i wish that in bernadette we had gotten more resistance to helen especially in going into cabrini green in the first place like bernadette is very passive and she's very much like i don't know if we should but i would have loved a bernadette who said hey Helen, this is not your space. Yeah. You know, like we need to talk about this. Like if you really want to do this, there's a way to do it. But this, you know, like not just we should be scared because there are air quotes gangs, Mm -hmm. but like this is not your space. This is not your story. And that's where I really put my 2024 hat on. You know, I don't think, especially in regards to academic research, we were having a lot of those conversations in 1992. But the sheer fact that you had a black woman character who was just enabling this white woman the right. whole time and making bad choices. And that bummed me out a little bit. Yeah. I was also a little bummed out about Anne Marie, although, you know, she's a great character when we meet her. I just I love that turn when we first enter her home and like you go from this very dark, menacing hallway to this beautiful cozy home where there's a lot of love but we don't see her again and we don't see the way her community cares for her while her child is gone we don't see whether there are any resources that are helping her or not get through this we only see her at the very end when the baby is recovered and we can tell she's gone through it just by her physicality but we don't know much about her in that regard, you know, through this kind of pivotal loss. And that's a bummer. We get to learn more about her in the 2021 version. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy for that because she's a character you like instantly. And she's rather uh, wonderful in her feeling out of Helen and Bernadette. You know, she kind of did in that scene, at least what I wanted Bernadette to do. 
it could have been more explicit, but really kind of calling out like, why are you here? Why should I tell you my story? Okay, let's take a minute. Let's build trust. Let's talk as people. And then I'll I'll decide if I want to share my story with you or my neighborhood story. But I wanted more. I wanted more in Marie. Yeah. And to your point about Bernadette, the fact that she's Black is incidental yes. to the story, which is extremely frustrating because there was a clear opportunity there for her to say, this is the reason why you should listen to me. And here is how I know that we should be scared. Because clearly her message about being scared, about being in Cabrini Green, does not land because Helen has no problem going up, gallivanting into people's apartments, Mm -hmm. empty apartments that crime scenes occurred in, and then going back by herself to further take photos and explore these areas. It's ridiculous. Like, absolutely ridiculous that she wouldn't listen. So there was a very clear opportunity for Bernadette to say, here's how I know. And this is why you should listen to me. And we should not just like, randomly get dressed up and go to this place and then just start knocking on doors. It's not safe. Here are the reasons why. I mean, maybe it's sort of like necessary in the plot for Helen to just feel comfortable enough in her whiteness to be able to go back by herself, which clearly is a bad idea. But it was an opportunity where we could get credentials like, hey, here's how I know they're working in an academic field. Maybe even if she doesn't have personal knowledge, she could relay like, I read the newspapers. I watch the news. I know that Mm -hmm. things happen there and it's not exactly safe for us to be there by ourselves without finding someone who lives there, finding someone who has family there that can kind of be the go between for us to more safely enter. Helen just feels very safe in her whiteness. She says, they won't think we're cops. We'll just say we're not cops. I'm like, that's exactly what cops would say. Exactly. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, well, they won't follow us because they think we're cops. And it's like, so who cares, dude? If this is a dangerous enough area, which we learn later that it is a very dangerous area, it it doesn't matter. It does not matter what you look like. You're just traipsing into these people's homes, parking on the weird like grass area, just, you know, comfortable as can be, and then returning later and asking about this Candyman figure who ends up being a dude who obviously is not to be messed with because she had only come by one time before that. And then he busts her in the head and leaves her bleeding in the middle of this disgusting bathroom floor. Clearly not a safe place for you to go, but she felt completely comfortable going back there. And I'm like, what is it like to feel so safe in your whiteness that you think that any place that you go to is your place? Yeah. And later it comes all the way back around where Anne Marie's message to her, like the only reason why white people come here is to bring cops and to bring trouble. And that's exactly what we don't want. And that's exactly what she does. Yes. (laughs) She creates an entire lockdown. Now, granted, there's a good reason there's a child missing in this case, but she is the one who brings it full circle. Yes. She traipses in there, thinks that she's allowed, goes into all these places that she shouldn't be going, and then does it again by herself and creates an entire incident for this whole community of people. Well, and when she first arrives, when she and Bernadette first arrive at Cabrini Green, there are men out front. And the thing I found so interesting about that scene is the instant assumption that these men are there to cause trouble. Right. The thing is like, okay, here are two strange people coming in to your neighborhood. 
You are people who look intimidating, who, you know, seem to be, have the appearance of being able-bodied, strong. You are in a place where the cops don't care about you. Were they, air quotes, a threat or were they trying to protect their neighborhood from a threat? Exactly. We never know. Exactly. And I mean, they call up the stairs and say that it's the police. And just because something is illegal does not make it immoral. Right. <laughs> and I think that that is something that we, that a lot of people struggle with. It's like, well, that's illegal. So you can't expect there not to be consequences. And it's like, yeah, but is it immoral for someone to do what they need to do in order to feed their family or take yep. care of people? Whatever. So they are looking out for their neighbors. They're saying like, hey, the cops are here. Anything that might look criminal, make sure you hide it. Right. Because you don't want your stuff to get messed up. You don't yeah. want your family to be, you know, without a car, without a without a moneymaker person. So it's important. And we see this in film and television a lot for people who have either low income or unreliable income. You see that that trope play out a lot where it's like, yeah, they're doing something illegal, but it's not really immoral and they're not really hurting anybody. So they're just doing it to get by. And that's the only way that they can make money because maybe they live in a place where there aren't a lot of employment opportunities or there's not a lot of upward mobility or education. Would they be perhaps pulling themselves up by their bootstraps? Trying to, trying to. <laughs> you know? You know? <laughs> yeah. And it happens a lot for communities of lower income where th those kind of things happen and then the police of course come in and well i gotta lock you up because it's illegal it's like whatever yeah. moonshiners are a good example of that How i mean how many people are in our prison system right now for negligible amounts of pot exactly or any drug yeah. you know like you had enough for personal use and then they throw you into prison and yeah. that just perpetuates the cycle so i absolutely agree with you i think that there are two people, unannounced. Nobody knows who they are. They've never seen anyone. They say that they're going up to visit a friend. They're not. They're under suspicion. They're lying. They just want to snoop around. And I think it's fair to, yeah, to get hassled. Absolutely. To kind of take it into real life. I did read that the producers were so worried about this movie, the bad guy being a black man, depicting racism that Bernard Rose actually had to go and speak with the NAACP about the movie. And they created this appointment. The producers were like, you have to go meet with them because we are so afraid that this movie is going to fail. And so they sent over the script to the NAACP. They have the meeting and the NAACP is like, why are we even having this meeting? This movie is just good fun. Like we're yeah. in support of it. We don't think that you need to have a special meeting with us about this. And it's like, here we go again with well-meaning white people like, yeah, we're yeah. so afraid this is going to be bad. And then they're like, we're OK with it. Yeah. <laughs> like you didn't have to have this meeting with us. You wow. can make whatever you can make whatever media you want. They weren't concerned that Candyman was going to be a black villain that reinforced already existing racial stereotypes. They were like, make whatever movie you want. This is a horror movie. People are going to be scared of whatever they're going to be scared of. And although Candyman's blackness is integral to this iteration of the story, in the original, it's not necessary yes. for that to be there because it's more of a, a rich man, poor man thing. It's just interesting how we like threw up our arms and we we're like, oh, we got to be really careful about this. And it's like, we have to be really careful that the fantastic spectral character of the Candyman who has bees coming out of his mouth and a hook for a hand is black. I think we have more 
pressing matters to worry about that don't have to do with this movie. Well, I think it was like a weird recognition that they didn't actually take the right steps to remedy, which is, you know, especially in 1992. Oh, hey, we have a white director making a story based on a, making a movie based on a story written by a white English writer. You know, the solution would actually be maybe have more creators of color in Hollywood, which is something we're still grappling with. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the concern back then was, oh my gosh, we don't want to piss off the NAACP. And then the concern in 21 was, we have an all black creative team making a movie. Is it going to piss off people because it's too air quotes woke you know like yeah yeah it's pretty goofy yeah the solution to that would have been like maybe we should uh if we're viewing this as a problem maybe we should invest in more creators of color in hollywood and 30 years later they're still grappling with that problem Oh, yeah. Or if a a creator of color fails one time, then never getting work ever again when Steven Spielberg can make a bunch of bullshit movies and still be Steven Spielberg and throw his weight around. James Cameron. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, look at Ava DuVernay making incredibly important movies. And she had one movie that did not do, at least in the box office, which is the only thing that matters to studios, did not do well. And yet... She's still out there making important movies and she's still out there trying and excelling in her craft. And then we have Steven Spielberg who makes a whole bunch of really terrible movies. And then they're like, studios are just lining up to give him hundreds of millions of dollars to make a movie. So very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And that's why I thought it was so important that Nia DaCosta's movie was made with an all-black creative team and predominantly a black cast. Yes. Which... I think is incredibly important to tell this story, which in the 21 version, it's Anthony McCoy, who is the child that is, you know, absconded from um, Anne-Marie in this movie. So it, it like all came back around, but they put the black people in the original movie first mm-hmm. in the second iteration of it, although it's still called Candyman. It's kind of a continuation of the same story. Yeah. And that's what we should have done with the mm-hmm. first movie. But I think that Bernard Rose was sort of out of his depth in that regard. And also, 92, we weren't exactly as culturally competent to do that. No, I think that unfortunately, if they had made Candyman 92 with the casting of Candyman 21, it would have gotten pushed off into a corner in the 90s version of a race film yeah. because that we were still doing that back then. These right. are black people films, you know, these are not exactly. films for mass audiences. Yeah. You know, we sing his praises a lot, but I think in horror Jordan Peele is doing a lot to change that. You know, he will say explicitly, "I make films for black people," mm-hmm. but he releases them on a scale that, you know, they can be enjoyed and consumed by many audiences. And just because they are for Black people doesn't mean that they should be marginalized in terms of release. Yeah. And I think that's great. You know, we were not doing that in the 90s. Definitely not. I mean, after Bernard Rose had to go meet with the NAACP, Virginia Madsen was like, I'm actually concerned about what the way that this movie is going to be received by Black people. I'm yeah. worried about it. She said, there's a quote on IMDb where she said she was worried about what Spike Lee was going to think. And 
and during this time, Spike Lee was making quote air quotes black people films, yes. you know, films that they were released on a bigger scale, but people were like, oh, well, this is about these are trials and tribulations of black people. So white people aren't going to want to watch this. And now those movies are like timeless, famous, yes. you know, yes. Actors who were such a controversial figure at the time. Yeah. And and actors who are were in those movies and musicians that were in those movies are famous. Now it's just fascinating to me how we were handling this in 92 like oh go meet with NAACP that, so that you can and also I also read and this could be apocryphal who knows Bernard Rose and his production team actually bribed the real gangs that were around Cabrini Green so that they could be protected during the oh. time of, of filming because it was actually like a pretty dangerous area who knows I don't know if that's real there's also a story that like one of their vans got shot do not know if that's real. This is on IMDb, user submitted. So who knows? But that's that's just another Honestly, story. <laughs> I'm like, it's so funny because that was one of the things that I found. It's the flip of that that I found so frustrating about all of Helen's interactions, like with the kids showing her around and with Anne Marie. I'm like, can you give these people some cash yeah. for their time and services here? Yeah. Like why she did not at any point like slip this kid some money when he's showing her around right. putting himself at risk like you know if you're going to be going into people's space at least compensate them right yeah it's it's really silly yeah it was definitely a different time it's only been 30 years but it feels yeah. like it's been eons it really does so you mentioned while we were watching the movie that most of the cops in this movie are black. They are, yeah. The majority um, of them. With the exception of the one, the female cop who helps Helen undress. And the reason why she specifically is that woman is because she was friends with Helen. And uh, Virginia Madsen was like, I'm not really comfortable undressing in front of anybody else. So she advocated for this woman who is a personal friend of hers to be the one that she like undressed in front of oh that's cool. so that way she would feel more comfortable in the scene which yeah. i was like okay whatever but i wanted to outline the way that the lead detective treats helen mm -hmm. so first time that we see this detective it's after helen gets beat up in the bathroom and then she goes to the cops and she points out who it was who the man was that hurt her that beat her up and the cop's like, very good. You know, he's he's telling you, like, good job. You did such a good job. And at that point, I'm like, wow, she's doing exactly what they didn't want her to do and why they didn't want to talk to white people in the first place is bring a whole bunch of freaking cops over here. So she does that. And then the second time that we interact with that detective is after Anthony goes missing and they find her in Anne Marie's apartment covered in blood. Dog's head is cut clean off she she just hit Anne marie in the arm with the with the hatchet and the detective treats her completely differently he's screaming at her he won't listen to her and of course like who would her story is pretty unbelievable it was fascinating to me to see the way that this cop like immediately turns on helen because if this was i mean at least in the way that netflix documentaries lead me to believe cops would treat people nowadays in the first place they would immediately think that she was a murderer because, yeah. I mean, she's caught pretty much dead to rights. 
But a lot of times what you see in movies instead is that if somebody has a relationship with a detective in the first place, then they'll they'll be like nicer to them. Yeah. And in this case, it was not that way. It was like Helen is helping this dude do his job at the first meeting. And then in the second meeting, she has stolen this child, ostensibly kidnapped it, put him somewhere. And the cop is like, on, you know, switches and I just thought that was really interesting, the way that their their interactions changed between the first and the second time that they met. This is reading a lot into it, but that second interaction where he is, you know, he's yelling at her, he's accusing her, things like that. I don't know that it was an intentional choice, mm-hmm. but to have a white woman as the subject of this intense, you know, very intense experience with police. I don't know if they did that intentionally to sort of shine a light on the experiences of people with the police, because typically, like, white women are seen as, you know, writ large, the sort of most air quotes sympathetic, Mm -hmm. you know, people. But I just couldn't help but think with a 2024 hat on that that inversion having black cops questioning a white woman and the discomfort there is really leading us to say well if that was flipped and it were white cops questioning a black person in that way would we as an audience you know as two white people watching this movie would we feel the same discomfort would we be keying in on that in 1992 maybe not yeah in 2024 I think so. Yeah. I don't think that that dichotomy would have occurred to me several years ago in several watches. But as we have gone through this era of, you know, really bringing to light police brutality and police murder of people of color, I think I'm becoming more and more aware of those dynamics. And it was just it was very interesting to see the reverse of that that still kind of leads you around to the same conclusion. Yeah, I agree with you. I did also want to mention that Helen takes a lot of blows to the head in this movie. Yeah. She gets hit in the head by the fake candy man, I guess. He hits her in the head with a hook and she's like left bleeding on the floor. Her head, like she gets pretty badly beat up. Her eyes Mm -hmm. all swollen and gross. It looks like she probably ruptured her pupil or something at one point. It's pretty bad. And then later, Anne-Marie grabs her head and hits it against the floor multiple times I'm like, man, is this all like a concussion dream or something that she's having afterwards? Because like her passing out and having these experiences doesn't start happening until after she gets beat up by the Candyman. So although she does feel kind of like woozy the first time she sees the big painting in the empty apartment, she doesn't start having these like pass out episodes until after she gets beat up. So I was like, man, maybe this is all like concussion So that has occurred to me in other watches of the film, that this is literally all in her head. But the only thing I can't get over is the comment I made to you right at the end of the film, which is that something, (laughs) the Candyman has to be magically keeping that baby alive. Yeah. Because the baby has been kidnapped for like a month and a half, I think. So if it all was in Helen's head, like... Who has been feeding and caring for that baby for that long? Like, that—that that is the only part that leads me to believe, like, 
no, the rules of the film say kind of can't be in her head but right. it is a really interesting thing to interrogate yeah and and probably why she gets hit in the head so often yeah <laughs> because i mean the movie does spell out completely for you it was always helen <laughs> like yes. it, it, even though you know Candyman is there and is an influence and is an actual figure by the end of the movie you know the bonfire and and finding the hook and everything. Although, I mean, I guess ostensibly Helen could have dragged the hook into the the, sure. the pyre. But if we believe that he's an actual figure and that he did exist, also the bees at the end yeah. um, coming out of the inferno, it's really interesting to think that Helen's been doing all of this. Like, it's kind of like an out-of-body experience, you know? Like, yeah. she's being possessed, I guess, by this idea of Candyman. And then she's, like, accidentally killing people. But I did also want to pose the question to you. Do you think that this movie is actually just an extended cheating revenge film? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, from from the very, very start, we do get that setup of uh, of Trevor. Oh, uh, yeah. Trevor's the worst. He's God. just awful through the whole film. His entire function in this film is to be terrible. Yeah. Um, he has terrible friends, terrible yeah. colleagues. Yeah. He's just a shithead. He's, he's awful. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like Trevor. I mean, if you're going to take revenge on somebody for cheating, I feel like there are easier ways to do it than kidnapping a whole ass baby and, you know. Killing your best friend. Killing your best friend. Yeah. Um, seems like a lot of collateral damage there. I do love that Helen freaks out when the apartment is painted that ugly pink. <laughs> She's just like... I hate the color scheme. <laughs> yeah, I hate the color scheme. Thank um, you, I do too. Yeah, yeah. And I think that the film could have been effective without that, but I really liked the sort of like come about part of that movie where at the very end, Helen like comes back and, and kills her husband and terrifies too. her and terrifies his like new girlfriend or whatever well it's nice because trevor never gets a moment of redemption because there are a couple of scenes where you almost think he's like when she's really going through it that like okay this is going to be the moment where trevor is like i'm not gonna cheat anymore i'm you know my wife is going through this experience i'm gonna stand by her and this is gonna be the moment where i'm going to like commit myself to being a good husband he never gets there no and you would think that this girl this new girlfriend of his knows about all this shit because he is on television escorting his wife out of the jail yeah and like, this really high profile kidnapping be in on that no god no yeah that's she, really complicated and this girl is doing the most at the end her outfit i was like She's really going for it. She's really trying. She's really trying hard. And this dude's like in his mid 40s, clearly a professor, like thinking that he's hot shit at University of Illinois. Yeah. I I just like uh, Xander Berkeley is a great actor, but I just hate his face because he always plays a shithead. (laughs) It's it's so hard for me when when it's a it's an actor that is a good actor and I like them, but they always play a bad guy. I'm always like, Damn it. I can't not hate this guy's face. So you know he's going to be a shithead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can tell from the very beginning. Yeah. There's and- a there's a couple a couple sequences where you're like, why isn't he home at three in the morning yep. when she's in the jail? Like, that's weird. Yeah. It's like you just want to tell the girlfriend, like, girl, run. <laughs> yeah, know? dude. 
you don't need this man and his and his shit. Right? Like, I mean, that's a trope of young girl getting with oh, older yeah. professor. Yeah. I just actually read a book recently where that was the whole trope. And I was like, really? That's the thing? Seriously? Ugh. I never had a professor. I was like, yeah, no. 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 Maybe like a TA or something, but a professor? Ugh. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of a single one. No, not at all. Now, like professors on TV. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a little different. But <laughs> in real life, no, it, life doesn't work like that. The fantasy versus the reality here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also wanted to say that this movie, I think, is pretty prolific in the things that it imparted into other horror movies. Oh, yeah. Even though Bernard Rose is not a person of color, I think that it paved the way for us to have movies where the main antagonist or the bad guy is a person of color and not conflate the fact that they're bad. Mm-hmm. Because in this case, Candyman, while I guess you could say he's evil in the ways that he takes out his vengeance. And by that, I mean, you have to shed innocent blood in order to perpetuate his myth. Yes. And the baby is one of the v- potential victims. That in and of itself is evil, but why he is that way is because he had terrible evil and violence happen upon him. So I think that this movie opened a door to say, hey, let's have more of these stories with people of color who are either the quote unquote bad guy and not conflate that with the fact that they're actually bad or not confuse that with a stereotype. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think that this was probably... Maybe not the start of it, but it was a a big budget movie that allowed us to take those next steps. And it's incredibly influential. Um, I know Jordan Peele has said that this movie is a really big influence on him. There are tons of hooks in a bunch of other movies because of this one. Um, I think Clive Barker, we mentioned while we were watching this, Clive Barker like might just have a thing for hooks. I think so. Yeah. I could probably go through and watch some more of his movies, but just off the top of my head, I was like, Midnight Meat Train, that mm-hmm. has hooks. Hellraiser, obviously, lots of hooks. I'm trying to remember if Rawhead Rex has hooks. It probably does at some point. I don't remember. It's been but, a minute since I've watched that one. But Clive Barker, if you're listening out there, let us know. Are you? Do you have some sort of weird fetish with hooks? <laughs> are you like obsessed with meatpacking plants or something? I mean, they are terrifying, and I hate yeah. watching videos of them, but... That was effective. That was an effective thing that PETA did. So yes. Maybe not everyone to see footage of a yeah, meatpacking no kidding. So next time, and funny enough, we mentioned this person earlier. We're going to do a film uh, starring Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> uh, we're going to do 1998's Beloved, based on the amazing Toni Morrison novel. This film is complicated it's scary it's interesting i'm i haven't watched it in years and i'm really excited to do this one i've never seen this one so i'm i'm very i'm very excited i've seen other tony morrison um and read other works by tony morrison but i'm really excited to see this one and danny glover is in this and i love danny glover like i watched lethal weapon over and over again <laughs> and mel gibson aside I, lo- I just love danny glover so i'm really excited to see this one and see how it pans out because i i really don't hear about this movie a lot when it comes to horror so i'm i'm excited to watch it yeah it's funny i feel like everybody talks about this movie but not in a horror context and when you look it up it is explicitly listed as a horror film so that's the angle we're gonna take all right 
Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. And hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attackofthefinalgirls. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.